Thank you for downloading our audio tour. If you really want the complete experience of this tour, you should check out pictures, videos, and the other extras you can find in our free app. Download our free easy travel app for iOS, Android, Windows Phone, and Google Glass now, or visit Easy Travel for more information. Well, hello, and welcome to this amazing city, Berlin. Things are getting pretty much back to normal here these days after that terrible period, almost a century of it, from the rise to power of the Nazis in 1933 to the fall of East German communism and with the wall coming down too, all followed by the frenetic rebuilding of East Berlin. Now, I think you could safely say in 2014 that Berlin is pretty much back to normal after more than 80 years of one kind of chaos or another. On our way, we will visit the Brandenburg Gate, Unter den Linden, the site of Hitler's bunker, the Holocaust Memorial, Checkpoint Charlie and loads more memorable places. Then the second day of touring the city will take us to the St. Nicholas Quarter, to Potsdam and to the 1936 Olympic Stadium and we'll go shopping and pubbing and clubbing. I think that by the time you've heard my expert guide, Torben Brown, of Original Berlin Tours and of me and my other guests, then you'll have a good idea what this place is all about. So put on some comfy shoes and let's get moving. Well, welcome to the tour, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Discover Berlin tour. My name is Torben, and I grew up on uh, Long Island, New York, but I've been living in Berlin for 13 years now. I was born in Germany. My mother's German. I'm a German citizen. I'm the real thing, in case you want to take photographs or anything on the tour. <laughs> but the tour will take about three and a half uh, hours. Uh, we'll be seeing some of the more important uh, sites in Berlin, including the larger stretch of the wall remaining in the center of town, the site of Hitler's bunker, Checkpoint Charlie, to name just a few. The town of Berlin itself wasn't founded until the late 12th century, around 1200, as a small fishing village or trading village. Right? Berlin remained a rather insignificant place in the centuries that followed, but it really wasn't until the late 17th and early 18th centuries that Berlin became a significant capital. And one reason for this is uh, that the ruling family here, the Hohenzollern, who ruled in Berlin for over 500 years, produced four healthy and competent male heirs in succession. Right, this is normally the problem with monarchy. Every few generations or so, you get a guy who's a total idiot or talks to trees or something. This wasn't the case with the Hohenzollern at this time. The last of the four competent rulers was Frederick II, Frederick the Great. And we'll see a number of buildings that he had built in Berlin. And Frederick really consolidated lands under his rule, Prussia, right, made Prussia an important state in Europe, and Berlin a significant capital. In 1866, Prussia defeated Austria, had become the strongest power in Germany. And in 1870, then, Prussia provoked a war with France. During that war, the smaller German states really had nowhere else to turn. They had to rally around the Prussian flag. And at the end of that war, the French were defeated, and the Prussian king was crowned emperor or Kaiser, German Kaiser, and Germany was unified. Right, so Germany was unified quite late in early 1871. And in the decades that followed Germany's unification, Berlin tried to play catch-up with great European capitals like Paris or London. And Germany tried to establish itself as a great power in Europe, travel Britain or France. And this was, at least a, this was at least a contributing cause of World War I, which broke out, if you will, in August of 1914. And the war was a disaster for Germany. Over 2 million of its soldiers died. Some estimates suggest that 4 million Germans altogether died as a consequence of the war. At the end of it, Germany was, of course, defeated. The country descended into revolution. The Kaiser was forced to abdicate. He fled to Holland. 
The government signed the Versailles Peace Treaty, which stipulated that Germany bore sole responsibility for World War I, and also burned the economy with heavy reparations demands. Now, the government's efforts to pay down reparations contributed to hyperinflation in 1923. In November of 1923, one U.S. dollar would have bought you about 4.2 trillion marks. Right? It's 11 zeros. Right? A bus ticket here in Berlin cost a billion marks. On some cases, when you went to a restaurant, you would have had to pay for each course separately because the dessert would have been so much more expensive by the end of the meal than would have been when you got there. The stock market crashed in New York in 1929. We associate at least with the Great Depression. Millions of people were out of work in Germany. About six million people were out of work. And this, in turn, helped give rise to extremist uh, parties in Germany. You had the communists on the left and the National Socialists, the Nazis, under Adolf Hitler on the right. And in 1932, the Nazis became the strongest party, representing the Reichstag and the German parliament. And in January of 1933, Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany. We just crossed the bridge here, crossed the river, onto Museum Island. And this is an actual island uh, formed by the river, forking the south behind you here. Right? The two uh, branches of the river, so to speak, uh, converge again behind these buildings here. And it's called Museum Island, of course, because there are a number of museums located on the north half of the island. Uh, the first one I want to point out is the one immediately behind me. That's the Alte Nationalgalerie, or Old National Gallery. It's got a good collection of German romantics, if you're into that. Uh, the emphasis is on German art. Well, the museum has a decent collection of French impressions and post-impressions as well. Uh, this museum was the first in the world to acquire a major work of, uh, by Manet, by Cézanne, by Renoir. Around 1900, uh, German museums had about twice as many French impressions and post-impressions than did French museums. Right? They were quite positively received here by a segment of the population, certainly not by everyone. Gray building peeking out behind. That's the Pergamon Museum, Berlin's uh, most popular museum. And it's named for its most famous artifact, the Pergamon Altarpiece. Pergamon was a city in ancient Greece uh, that really rivaled Athens, located in modern-day Turkey. And the altarpiece from the temple there was brought here and reconstructed inside the museum. It has the famous frieze of the gods fighting the giants. Other attractions at the Pergamon Museum include the Market Gate of Miletus, an ancient Roman market gate, which they just uh, finished restoring the last couple of years, so you can again see it in all its glory. And my personal favorite, the Babylonian Ishtar Gate which was built in the 6th century B.C. under Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great himself strode through the gate in the 4th century B.C. And we'll be coming back for a proper look at the Pergamon Museum and the fabulous Ishtar Gate and other ancient wonders at the end of this walking tour. Behind me here you can see a big church, and that's the uh, Berlina Dome or Berlin Cathedral. This church here was built to rival St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Uh, it was only completed in 1905, built in this bombastic imperial manner that the Kaiser liked, big, impressive, neo-baroque church with a very ornate interior. Uh, the church is worth a visit. It costs money to get in. Uh, you can visit this, sort of, uh, this ornate interior. You can also climb down into the crypt where a number of the, the Hohenzollern monarchs uh, are buried, right? the rulers of uh, uh, Prussia. And you can also climb up to the rotunda. And from the rotunda, you've got a good view of the city. And you're uh, a lot closer to things than you would be if you head up to the television tower. During World War II, a bomb crashed right through the roof of the church. It then fell through the floor and landed in the crypt. It did uh, quite a bit of damage. Renovation work on the building, however, took uh, decades and wasn't completed until 1993, until about 50 years after the church had been bombed. So a lot of what you see there, uh, the, the domed roof, for instance, is really quite uh, new, is quite young. And the, the domed roof is also lower than it was uh, before the Second World War.
Over here on your left, the bridge that you see, that's the Schlossbrücke or Castle Bridge. And the bridge is the start of Unter den Linden, or under the linden trees, under the lime trees for non-Americans. This is Prussian Berlin's main boulevard, where the most important public buildings in Prussian Berlin were to be found. We'll be walking down it. The white building, that's the foreign ministry of Germany today. The long gray building extending behind it with a slight curve. That was originally built under Hitler as the National Bank of Germany, as Hitler's Reichsbank, uh, built in the mid-1930s. In East German times, those are the offices of the, com uh, of the uh, uh, Central Committee of the uh, Communist Party of East Germany. Today, the building is part of the foreign ministry. So it's got quite a, a mixed history. After World War II, the communist East German uh, regime decided to set up a memorial of its own inside here. Uh, this is in the early 1960s. It became a memorial uh, with a very broad focus dedicated to all victims of fascism and militarism. And inside, the East Germans placed the remains of an unknown concentration camp victim alongside the remains of an unknown soldier, which is a rather strange juxtaposition of two very different groups of people. And the effect of this was sort of exacerbated by the fact that East Germans had soldiers standing guard outside and changing the guard ceremony several times a week, which these soldiers goose-stepped in formation. Uh, even the uniforms they wore were reminiscent of German Wehrmacht uniforms, German military uniforms from World War II. And that memorial, uh, of course, became untenable when the wall came down. A new memorial has been set up since. It, too, is a very broad focus that's dedicated to all victims of war and tyranny. And inside, you'll find the enlarged copy of a sculpture by the great expressionist artist Kete Kollwitz of a mother mourning her dead son, a Pieta. And very interesting hearing Torben talking about those guards because I can remember the last time I was here in probably 1982 or 3, certainly well before the wall came down. And goodness, what a change. But I came to this building then and saw the... East German military march up and down outside, still goose-stepping. Why on earth would the communists have continued with the goose-step? I suppose it was a, no, the Russians did a certain amount of it themselves anyway, but, I mean, an amazing thing to see them with their rifles, their boots, their knee-length boots, and all the rest of it, just marching up and down here. And inside the statue that he was talking about is very moving, it's very peasant-like. It's very rounded. There are no sharp edges. It's a, a woman swathed her head in a scarf. Her clothes look as though she's got a blanket around her as well, and his dead son is in her arms and looking up towards the roof, and his legs are bare and his arms are lifeless. And that certainly is a better way of marking the unspeakable crimes of, of militarists and tyrants than the way that the East Germans used to do it here. That's the uh, Staatsoper, or State Opera House, one of three major opera houses in Berlin. Uh, Berlin's a great city for opera lovers. We've often seen opera for less than 10 euros. we be able to get tickets on the evening of an opera. Uh, Berlin very often has two or three of something. Because whatever East Berlin had, West Berlin had to have also, and vice versa. So there are three major opera houses. Up until recently, there were three airports, there are three universities, uh, two symphony orchestras, two zoos, and so on. Uh, this is probably the, uh, the most uh, famous of the three opera houses. I know you're 
don't really get a sense of it because the construction that's going on was actually destroyed, uh, largely destroyed twice in the Second World War. Uh, the first time in 1941, uh, quite early, right? Carpet bombing of Berlin really didn't begin until 1943. Uh, but opera houses were uh, often rather quickly restored under the Nazis. Hitler was a big opera fan. It was restored in 1943, then severely damaged in the bombings again, uh, and only restored a second time after the Second World War in communist East Germany. And the communist East German restored building at very poor acoustics. Uh, so they want to fix that problem. That's why it's undergoing extensive renovation work uh, a third time right now. Behind the, behind the opera house, the church that you see, that's St. Hedwig's Cathedral or Hedwig's Kathedrale. It's Berlin's Roman Catholic Cathedral. Uh, Berlin is a very Protestant city. Right? I mentioned the Hohenzollern were uh, uh, Calvinists, the, uh, the population largely uh, uh, Lutheran. Berlin Cathedral we saw earlier, notwithstanding its ornateness, a, a Protestant uh, church. And it wasn't necessarily usual in uh, Frederick's time to build a Catholic church in a Protestant city. Now, the church here you can see is modeled on the Pantheon in Rome. Pantheon meaning all gods. The symbolism being clear was built as a symbol of religious tolerance. Uh, this square is just famous for the fact that the university is located here. Book burnings were staged in university towns all across Germany. Probably the biggest of these book burning ceremonies took place here in Berlin. It was filmed for the newsreels. Uh, Joseph Goebbels, the newly named propaganda minister, spoke here. Uh, the book burnings were organized by the students themselves in an effort to cozy up to the new regime. It's a truly sinister ritual. Students would declare things like, against the foreign journalism of Democrats and Jews, for a national awakening, I condemn to the flames the works of several books were being burned, which were then thrown onto the pyre. Now, books were burned by Jewish writers, communist writers, social democratic writers, liberal writers, pacifist writers, international writers. Ernest Hemingway's books were burned here for being anti-war and for being pornographic and so on. 20,000 books were burned on the square that day. And there's a memorial here reminding us of that event, which I think is one of the more interesting memorials in the city. Right? Most memorials are very big and obvious. And this one really has to be pointed out to you. We'll take a look at that now. This memorial is known as the, uh, the empty library. You can see it just consists of this window here, this glass panel. You will be through this window into an empty room. That room is totally inaccessible. You can look into it through this, just look into it through this window here, and that room is lined with empty bookshelves. There's enough shelf space there for 20,000 books, the number of books burned on the square that day. And that's a lot of books, right? Uh, it's best to look at an angle. You should be able to make the bookshelves fairly easily. If you look straight down, you won't be able to see anything. It's lit up from below, so it's particularly effective at night, right? You can just walk by here and see the light emanating from the ground. That's uh, rather effective. Another writer witnessed the book burnings was Christopher Isherwood, right? The British um, author of uh, the Berlin stories, Goodbye to Berlin, great Berlin uh, uh, novels. Uh, Isherwood saw the book burnings take place here, and shortly thereafter, he got on a train and left the country. warmer down here, right? This subway station here, right, it's, a, it's a metro station, uh, was uh, opened in 1936 by Hitler personally. And you can still see the original tiling when the station was opened under Hitler. But the reason we've come down here is the history of the station in the years when the Berlin Wall stood. I mentioned that in August of 1961, the East German government ordered a wall to be built all the way around West Berlin to prevent the East German citizens from fleeing to the West. But of course, it wasn't enough to just build a wall. The East Germans also had to seal up all the entrances to the subway stations where trains ran between East and West Berlin. Because otherwise, people could have come down to these subway stations here, hopped onto the tracks, and then run along the tracks until they reached West Berlin and escaped that way. And so in 1961, when the wall was built at the same time, all the entrances to the subway stations were sealed up and the trains stopped running. But this posed a problem for a number of West Berliners. 
because some subway lines originated in West Berlin, then snaked underneath the city, underneath parts of East Berlin, and then came out in uh, West Berlin again. And so some West Berliners who took the train to work every morning from one part of West Berlin to another part of West Berlin suddenly couldn't do so anymore. But the East German and West German governments came to an arrangement by which the West Germans paid the East to be allowed to continue to run those subway lines. And so, if you had been living in West Berlin in the years when the wall stood, you could have gotten on the train in West Berlin, taken the train to the East Berlin border, the train would then have slowed down about 10 miles an hour, and the train would slowly have snaked underneath East Berlin, right through these subway stations here. If you look out onto the platform, it would be dimly lit. Every once in a while, you'd see a guard carrying a machine gun patrolling the platform, but otherwise the stations were abandoned. And the train wouldn't have stopped, of course, but would have continued on and only made its next stop once it reached West Berlin again. And so these subway stations here were known as ghost stations. There's nobody here. They were abandoned. That must have been a very surreal experience for the East Berliners because they could hear these trains and they could feel the vibrations underneath their feet when the train passed by, but there was no way for them to get to the trains. Although it did make things quite easy when the wall came down to reconnect East and West, all that had to be done was to reopen the entrances to the subway stations to clean up the platforms and change the train schedules and trains running again between East and West Berlin just a few months uh, after the wall came down. made it here to the Brandenburg Gate. Uh, Brandenburg Gate is probably the most famous landmark in Berlin. Brandenburg Gate is certainly important to not only Berlin, but also of Germany as a whole. The gate is on the back of some of the German Euro coins, also a symbol of the division between East and West. But I'll say something about that in a moment. Uh, the Brandenburg Gate was built between 1788 and 1791, and it was built to complete this main boulevard that we've walked down here, Unter den Linden, and it was built right where the old city border was once located. Beyond the gate was no longer Berlin. Beyond the gate, the road led to the town of Brandenburg and that's where the gate gets its name. On the other side of the gate today is the Tiergarten, which is Berlin's central park, one of the biggest urban parks in Europe, in fact. Berlin is a very green city, about 30% of Berlin is green, it's parkland. The word Tiergarten in German means animal garden, and originally the Tiergarten was the royal hunting grounds. By the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, the hunting grounds were turned into a park, and the park then donated to the city of Berlin. There's not much hunting going on there anymore, although Berlin does have an issue with wild boar encroaching on the center of town. Wild boar have been sighted at Alexanderplatz, where the television tower is, and foxes are known to make their homes in subway stations. See the statue on top of the gate of the goddess riding the chariot? Uh, the Quadriga. That statue was taken by Napoleon back to Paris with him when he occupied Berlin. When Napoleon in turn was defeated, Berliners got their statue back and they turned the goddess up there from a goddess of peace into a goddess of victory. And you can see she's holding a staff with a Prussian iron cross on top and the Prussian eagle on top of that. The gate has seen a lot of history. It was traditional to hold parades through the Brandenburg Gate, especially when Prussia was victorious in war. In 1866, for instance, when Prussia defeated Austria, become the strongest power in Germany, a military parade was held through the gate. In 1871, then, Germany was unified, another parade was held through the gate. And perhaps most famously, or I should say infamously, on January 30th, 1933, when Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany, Nazi brown shirts, Nazi SA troops, staged a torchlight parade through the Brandenburg Gate. Now, during World War II, the gate was damaged in the bombings and the Battle of Berlin in April of 1945 when the Soviets took the city, although it did remain standing, which is more than can be said for the buildings here on the square. But they were all destroyed. Really the, only, really, the only structure left standing or left intact here was the Brandenburg Gate, but it too was severely damaged. And restoration work on the gate took a number of years and wasn't completed until 13 years after the end of the war, until 1958. Now, I mentioned the Brandenburg Gate is an important symbol of the division of Berlin. If we'd been standing here 25 years ago, we would have been shot dead. We were standing here in the so-called Death Strip. The Berlin Wall ran right on the other side of the Brandenburg Gate, but there wasn't just one wall, there were always two. There was an outer wall and an inner wall. 
and the wall ran about where the hotel is behind you. And between those two walls was the death strip. There were guards patrolling with machine guns and German shepherds, guard towers and floodlights, and anyone who uh, entered the death strip uh, would have been shot. So all the years when the Berlin Wall stood, nobody was able to walk through the Brandenburg Gate. It was trapped between east and west, trapped between those two walls. So, so when the wall came down, to be able to walk through the gate again, this is an important symbol of the reunification of, uh, uh, of Berlin. The hotel behind you, the Hotel Adlon, which looks a lot like the old Hotel Adlon, which stood there up into the uh, uh, very end of the Second World War, it was really only in May of 1945, a couple of days before the war's end, that Soviet soldiers discovered the wine cellar, that had a little bit too much to drink, and then set the building on fire. Uh, but the hotel is most famous for the fact that it was here that Michael Jackson dangled his baby over the railings. Oh, yeah, it's... And we're just walking through the Brandenburg Gate now with that quadriga, the four horses, right above me. And it's a lot bigger than you'd imagine from a distance. You see it in photographs, like so many world monuments, and you think, well, that's not terribly impressive, but when you get here, maybe not quite on the scale of Paris's Arc de Triomphe, but it is a very fine gateway. Oh, and there's the Reichstag and the, the new dome on the top of it. We're standing here just inside East Berlin. The Reichstag, which you see behind me, is already West Berlin. And the Reichstag is, uh, today is the home of the German Bundestag, the lower house of the German parliament, and the central political institution in Germany. Uh, the Reichstag was built in the late 19th century, big, imposing building designed to rival the parliament at Westminster in London. And the Reichstag was the home of the German parliament in the years of the Kaiser and the years of the Weimar Republic, Germany's first democracy. About a month after Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany on January 30th, 1933, there was a fire set inside the Reichstag. The old copper and glass dome on top was destroyed, the building was gutted, and there's still a debate uh, amongst historians as to who set that fire. Now, most historians believe that it was a lone Dutch anarchist by the name of Marinus van der Lubbe who was caught outside the building after it had been set alight. Other historians maintain that it was the Nazis themselves who set the building on fire. Oh, you really don't know who it was, probably will never know for certain. But whoever it was, the Nazis certainly capitalized on the fire. They blamed it on a communist conspiracy, on a communist plot, and used it as an excuse to begin rounding up political enemies. Communists in the first place, but also social democrats, liberals, some conservatives, who were then stuck in prisons and concentration camps. Also, the day after the fire, an emergency presidential decree was issued, which suspended most democratic rights in Germany. And so the Reichstag fire is seen as a sort of a symbol of the end of democracy in Germany. And after the fire, the Nazis did not restore the building. They didn't like it very much. However, the Nazis, the Reichstag was a symbol of democracy, a talking shop. They never got anything done. Hitler never set foot inside the building so far as we know. Certainly never spoke inside the building. But in April of 1945, when the Soviets took the city, uh, the Soviets made an effort uh, uh, to take the Reichstag. Because of the Soviets, the Reichstag was the symbol of Berlin, the trophy that they most wanted to acquire. On April the 1st, 1945, Joseph Stalin summoned his top commanders to Moscow to receive their orders for the capture of Berlin. Between them, they represented a massive Soviet force of over two and a half million men. They were equipped with 6,000 tanks and self-propelled guns and 40,000 guns, mortars and rocket launchers. But the Germans were never going to make it easy. The city was defended by about a million troops. Zhukov began his assault on Berlin. 
one gun for every 13 feet of the front. The rape of German women and girls was widespread. After three more days of fighting, the city's remaining defenders were pinned down in a narrow strip of central Berlin, less than two miles wide. Then, on the morning of April the 30th, Soviet troops began an assault on the Reichstag. Stalin regarded it as the symbol of Nazi power. They were stopped by heavy fire. So they blasted the building at point-blank range with heavy artillery. That evening, the Russians stormed it. Fighting raged from room to room and up and down corridors and staircases. It would take four hours before the red flag could be hoisted on one of the towers. You may know the famous photograph showing a Soviet soldier planting the Soviet flag on top of the Reichstag, which has become part of the, you know, the iconography of World War II, like the American soldiers planting the flag on Iwo Jima. And that was uh, near the corner of the building closest to us. But that photograph was, in fact, staged. Uh, the uh, photograph was taken on May 2nd, after the building had actually been taken. And the original photograph had to be edited, because the original picture, one of the Russian soldiers could be seen to be wearing not one, but two wristwatches. Wristwatches he didn't have before he came to Berlin, and one at least was edited out of the picture. Right? And after the Soviets took the building, after they took the livestock, they did what any of us would have done. Right? They wrote, Ivan was here, on the walls of the livestock. <laughs> But of course, the Soviet population suffered terribly in World War II. We estimate that 27 million Soviet citizens perished in the course of the Second World War. And so the Soviets, very understandably, didn't have very nice things to say about the Germans. And it's also wrote things on the walls of the Reichstag that could be considered obscene or offensive. Now, when it was decided to move the Bundestag here in the 1990s, there was a debate about what to do with this graffiti, because it was seen by some to be strange to have graffiti from an occupying power on the walls of your own parliament. Now, the most obscene and offensive stuff was removed, but the rest remains inside. And so the interior walls of the German parliament covered with Russian graffiti. Now, behind me here, you can see what is commonly referred to as the Holocaust Memorial. Now, its official name is the Memorial for the Murdered Jews of Europe, which already implies one of the controversies surrounding this site. Uh, this memorial was built for the victims of the Holocaust, for the six million Jews who were murdered by Germans during World War II. It wasn't built for other minorities persecuted in the Nazi period or murdered in the Nazi period in mass numbers, like the Sinti and Roma peoples, whom we would commonly refer to as gypsies, Soviet prisoners of war, homosexuals, and others. In fact, the memorial has been built for the homosexuals murdered in concentration camps in, in Nazi Germany, uh, right inside the, uh, the park here. And another memorial has been built for the Sinti and Roma, the gypsies murdered in the Second World War, right next to the Reichstag. So they're now sort of separate memorials dotting the landscape in Berlin and specifically along the street that we just walked down. But this one here, this memorial was built for the victims of the Holocaust. Now a second controversy surrounding the memorial is its location. Some would have preferred to see the money spent on this memorial invested in existing memorial sites. Just north of Berlin, for instance, is Sachsenhausen Concentration Camp Memorial, which could really use an influx of money uh, to improve the infrastructure, it's a little difficult to get to, to improve the exhibits that are to be found there. And Sachsenhausen is a place where tens of thousands of people were murdered, uh, which is not the case here. I've got some time in the next couple of days. Uh, I want to head out to Sachsenhausen. I can try to get there. It's not all that difficult. A third controversy or a third debate surrounding the memorial was whether to build it according to abstract or according to representational designs. And what you see here is, of course, a purely abstract memorial. They did, however, come up with a compromise solution. 
You can see, let's uh, look at me, 50, 60 meters behind me are stairs leading down into a subterranean museum, a museum underneath here, which details the history of the Holocaust and contextualizes uh, what you see here. But the moral itself is uh, a purely abstract. It just consists of 2,711 of these concrete blocks. That number has no significance. It just happens to be 2,700. The memorial was designed by the New York architect Peter Eisenman and opened in May of 2005. So it's uh, more than eight years old now. And you can see the, uh, the concrete blocks arranged in sort of wave shape. The concrete blocks, the blocks themselves um, are sort of uh, reminiscent of gravestones. The memorial has sort of a, a cemetery feel. As you walk through the memorial, you're supposed to get a sense of alienation, something akin to what it would have been like to suffer in the Holocaust, which I think is rather naive, to say the least. Uh, but I'll let you judge for yourselves. We'll take a break here. You might want to spend just a minute or two walking into the center of the memorial. The stones in the center are a lot taller than you might suspect. They're almost five meters in height. So the effect is very different when you're standing in the center than just looking into it from the perimeter here. Well, I've walked now almost into the center of this Holocaust memorial and these blocks are now towering above me and there's a very strange feeling I th there are things that come to mind that didn't when I was on the edge of it or for example somewhere maybe 50, 60 metres 100 metres ahead of you you'll see someone just quickly walk across fleeting here one moment gone the next there's this sort of disorienting sense of the hugeness of this thing, this as if it was the operation to gas the Jews, that you're powerless in the presence of, of all of this, all these monoliths, these things that you can't move, you can't alter. You're entirely small and insignificant. And the ground undulates, so you have to keep a, an eye on whether it's going up or down. But the difficulty is, of course, that it's a brilliant place for children to play hide-and-seek and... Seek and there are some children up the other end at the moment doing exactly that, running to and fro, which somewhat reduces the seriousness of the place. And one rather tragic PS to the Holocaust Memorial here is that the 2,711 large grey concrete blocks have been treated with a chemical that resists graffiti, and that, you might think, was a very sensible idea. But it turned out, after the contract had been awarded, that the company that had created this chemical that resisted graffiti was an offshoot of IG Farben, the company which, in the 1940s, provided the Zyklon B poison gas for Auschwitz. I stand directly above Hitler's bunker. It was about 10 meters below us on April 30th, 1945, that Hitler committed suicide. The man whose insane ambitions had embroiled the world in war, laid waste a continent, and led to the extermination of millions of Jews, took his own life. Now, Hitler spent the last about six weeks of the war inside the bunker. He hardly ever left. When he did leave, he always drew the curtains in his car so he couldn't see the destruction in the city of Berlin. On April 29, 1945 then, Hitler married his longtime mistress, Afer Brown. Less than 30 hours later, he retired to his room, bit down on a cyanide capsule, and that same moment fired a bullet into his head and killed himself. His body was then removed from the bunker, was taken outside, doused in gasoline and set alight. But gasoline burns at a very low temperature, and still his bones remained essentially intact. 
When the Soviets took the bunker, they'd been only a few blocks away when Hitler committed suicide, they wanted to identify Hitler's remains so that they could prove to the world that Hitler was dead and that they had triumphed over fascism. But in the chaotic last days of the war, the Soviets had difficulty identifying Hitler's remains. They first of all had to establish whether Hitler was dead at all. And of course, this area here was churned up by artillery fire. Other people lost their lives in this location. But because the Soviets so desperately wanted to show the world that Hitler was dead, they decided to dress up a corpse to make it look like Hitler, took photographs of it and presented it to the world. But the world wasn't buying it. And various other uh, uh, potential Hitler corpses appeared. It was a body of one man uh, wearing darn socks. And it was determined, nah, could have been Hitler. Hitler would not have been wearing darn socks. Right? But if a Soviet soldier found, discovered the body of a man he thought looked like Hitler, he said, look, I think I found him. We know that Hitler is dead, and we're quite sure that he bit down in the cyanide capsule and fired a bullet into his head at the same time. We have both eyewitness evidence and forensic evidence. Uh, though a number of people inside the bunker, along with Hitler, survived the war, were able to tell what they saw, and the Soviets did eventually get a hold of part of Hitler's jawbone, which was then matched with dental records, with dental x-rays, and proved to be Hitler's. Uh, that jawbone is now in an archive in Moscow, along with a piece of skull bone with a bullet hole in it that the Soviets claim belonged to Hitler. All the scientists are far more skeptical about that. But the, the jawbone certainly seems to be authentic. Some historians believe that Hitler's entire skeleton was discovered and that it was taken to a Soviet military base to the west of here in the east German city of Magdeburg and that in 1970 Hitler's remains were incinerated and the ashes either thrown into the river or flushed down the toilet. Now, some evidence to suggest this certainly looks like human remains were burned at Magdeburg in 1970. There's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that it was Hitler's remains, but uh, we, we can't say for, uh, uh, for sure. We simply don't know. Uh, certainly there's no burial plot of Hitler's, right? no burial site, which could become a place of pilgrimage for the small neo-Nazi community in Germany, or internationally for that matter. In fact, up until recently, there was no sign here marking this as the site of Hitler's bunker. A sign was set up here in 2006. Uh, the bunker itself has been made entirely inaccessible. The Soviets tried destroying the bunker soon after the war in 1947. But it's, of course, difficult to destroy a bunker, right? A bunker isn't meant to be destroyed. And so the Soviets really just succeeded in burning out the interior of it and flooding parts of it. But it remained largely intact. In the 1980s, however, when these apartment buildings here were built, the bunker was made entirely inaccessible. Uh, the East Germans successfully detonated the roof of the bunker, which then collapsed onto the floor of it, and so it's been entirely filled in. The outer walls are still standing, perhaps some of the interior walls, but it's totally filled in, totally inaccessible. So behind me here, you can see the largest stretch of the Berlin Wall remaining in the center of town. On the night of August 12, 1961, the East German government ordered about 40,000 soldiers and police officers to surround West Berlin and cover the perimeter with barbed wire. In the months and years that followed, security measures all the way around West Berlin grew ever tighter. In the first several months, the border was fairly porous. A lot of people managed to uh, uh, escape. The East German regime, from the beginning, was fairly certain they would have to build a wall eventually, but they originally hoped it would be enough to secure the border just by stationing some soldiers and string some barbed wire. Wasn't. A lot of people managed to escape, so the security measures were continually improved. Hundreds of bricklayers brought to the border all the way around West Berlin. They began building a wall brick by brick, which was then topped with barbed wire. The wall was about 155 kilometers long, all the way around, about 100 miles. Between East and West Berlin, the wall was about 30 miles long, maybe 42 kilometers. Now, we don't know how many people escaped through the Berlin Wall, and we don't know how many people died trying. The historical commission has looked into this, and the historical commission has confirmed 136 deaths at the Berlin Wall. There may have been more, but 136 deaths have been confirmed. That figure, by the way, 136, also includes guards who were shot to death by people trying to escape, not just those trying to escape themselves. Certainly many more East Germans died trying to escape across the inner German border. 
Others died trying to escape through other Eastern European states to the West. Some died trying to escape across the Baltic Sea to Denmark in homemade submarines, for instance. Those that perished here in Berlin trying to escape to the West, many were shot by East German guards. Others drowned trying to swim across a canal or river where it formed the border. Uh, some were suffocated hiding in cars trying to sneak across the border. The first person to perish here in Berlin, trying to escape to the West after the border had been secured in August of 1961, was a woman who jumped out of the top floor of a building that stood in East Berlin, saw the sidewalk out front was West Berlin. Then she fell to the pavement and died of her injuries. And what you see behind me here is the third generation Berlin Wall. You can see it's no longer a brick and mortar wall, but it's made up of these prefabricated concrete slabs. They're L-shaped, so they stand on their own and the wall is covered with this concrete piping. It was found that it was more difficult to climb over the concrete piping than the barbed wire, which you could have used to sort of heave yourself across. But we're standing here once again in the death strip. Right? There were guards patrolling here with machine guns and German shepherds, guard towers and floodlights. The back of this building here, the old Nazi air ministry, what became the planning ministry of East Germany, it was all sealed up. Despite the fact it was a ministry building, these Germans didn't want anybody getting this close to West Berlin. Right? Very strict security measures here. Now, in 1965, there was a, uh, a planning expert from the city of Leipzig to the south of Berlin, East German city to the, uh, uh, to the south of us. Um, and he, as a planning expert, he uh, regularly had business here in the planning ministry. And every time he had an appointment here, he would have to register at the, uh, at the door, uh, tell the guards they had an appointment, they would look it up, and they would give him a, give him a pass, uh, allowing him to enter the building. Right? And uh, after his appointment was over, he was supposed to return the pass before he went home. But one day, took the pass, pocketed it, went home uh, without returning it to the guards. And then waited several days, several weeks to see if anybody called him on it. Uh, nobody did. And so the next time he came here, he did the same thing, pocketed the pass. Did it a third time. So he collected three of these passes, one for himself, one for his wife, and one for their nine-year-old son. At the end of the workday, when everybody else went home, uh, they retired to a uh, restroom, which was located in the very top of the building here. You have to bear in mind, the roof here is staggered, okay? So it's uh, at the very top of the building, they found a, a, a lady's uh, restroom where they put a sign on the door saying the restroom was out of order to use another one. And they waited until they were locked inside. Uh, apparently it took them longer than an hour uh, to get to the ledge here. When they arrived here, the man, he had uh, brought a, a nylon cord with him and a hammer. He tied the nylon cord to the hammer and then threw the hammer across the wall into West Berlin. The man had a uh, family living in the West. His brother lived in West Berlin and he was, uh, 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 he knew what was happening and he, he uh, waited for the hammer to be thrown across the, uh, uh, the wall, grabbed a hole of the nylon cord, pulled it taut, and then uh, tied the nylon cord to the steel cable. And the man pulled the steel cable up to the roof of the building and fastened it to the, uh, to the roof. And the man developed the harness system. He had made harnesses for himself and his family, uh, put his wife in the harness. Right? She was going to go first, he was going to go last. She got in the harness and began sliding across the steel cable into West Berlin, like on a zip line. They all made it safely. In fact, it was only the next day the guards here saw the steel cable spanning from the roof of the building into West Berlin. Kennedy visited West Berlin in the summer of 1963 and gave a famous speech in which he spoke the words, 2,000 years ago, the proudest boast was, Kiwis Romanus Sum. That's Latin for I'm a citizen of Rome. Today, in the world of freedom, the proudest boast is, I am a jelly donut. Now, I'm not just testing you to see whether you're paying attention. In fact, some of you may have heard that when Kennedy famously spoke the words, Ich bin ein Berliner, that he actually misspoke. And instead of saying, I'm a Berliner, he said, in effect, I'm a baked good. 
Now, there's a small, small grain of truth to that. Pedantic German teachers will tell you that if you want to say, I'm a Berliner in German, you're supposed to drop the article. Instead of saying, ich bin ein Berliner, you're supposed to say, ich bin Berliner. Ein Berliner being a kind of donut that you can get in any bakery in Germany. But I can assure you that none of the one million people that heard Kennedy speak that day misunderstood his meaning. They're thrilled with what he said. Right? Kennedy's a real pop star in West Berlin. There are many people in the world who really don't understand what is the great issue between the free world and the communist world. Let them come to Berlin. Freedom has many difficulties, and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the word, Ich bin ein Berliner. It told the West Berliners exactly what they'd wanted to hear, namely the United, that the United States was willing to go to any means necessary to ensure that West Berlin remained part of, as he put it, as he saw it, the world of freedom. Uh, but if you go to souvenir shops today, you can still sometimes get keychains with donuts on them, and that's what that's about. Well, here we are, Checkpoint Charlie. We talk about Checkpoint Charlie in a moment. First, I want to say a few words. What happened? About just about 200 yards down the street here on August 17, 1962, almost exactly one year from the day the start of construction of the Berlin Wall. And on that day, an 18-year-old bricklayer's apprentice named Peter Fechter attempted, along with a colleague of his, to escape into West Berlin. And Fechter and his colleague managed to get through all the security measures here, managed to make it all the way to the outer wall. And Fechter's colleague scaled the wall, was able to jump into West Berlin. And then Fechter followed up the wall and he reached the top of it, but at that moment he was shot by East German uh, security guards and fell back into the desk room. Uh, laying a tangle of barbed wire, located at the foot of the outer wall. The bullets had pierced uh, a major artery. Fechter was bleeding profusely. West Berliners who had seen and heard what happened here, uh, what happened there, ran here to Checkpoint Charlie where American soldiers were stationed, told the American soldiers what had happened. American soldiers said, there's really nothing we can do, right? We cannot intervene. And so the West Berliners ran back to where Fechter was lying, got shouting across the wall at the Eastern guards who were milling about that the man needed medical attention. Fechter himself was pleading for help. All the West Berliners could do otherwise to help him was to throw some bandages and gauze into the district in the hopes that he could take it to staunch the bleeding. Now, Fechter lay in the desk for about an hour before he was carted off by East German security guards. He was dead already, right? He had bled to death. Now, Fechter was not the first person to perish at the wall, but his death did receive a lot of media attention. We have this image of Fechter. We've got photographs, video footage, showing Fechter lying in the fetal position, this tangle of barbed wire in the desk strip, pleading for help as he's slowly bleeding to death, but is ignored for almost an hour while the people just a few feet away willing to help, but he can't get there. It's a rather searing image. About 200 yards down the street, on the other side of the road, is a, a bronze column set up near the place where Fechter died uh, in his memory. But we're standing here at uh, Checkpoint Charlie, and Checkpoint Charlie was one of originally seven crossing points between East and West Berlin, but was reserved for foreigners in the military. The other six crossing points were largely at least for Germans only. And certainly Checkpoint Charlie was the busiest of the seven crossing points. Now it's difficult to get a sense of what Checkpoint Charlie looked like in the years when the wall stood. They certainly haven't done a good job in preserving it. If you're interested in learning more about the history of Checkpoint Charlie, uh, the history of the wall in general, you can visit the Wall Museum, which is behind me on the left-hand side of the street. Uh, they've got a lot of sort of uh, artifacts and stuff to look at. And there's not much to see here otherwise. Uh, you can see a little cabin in the middle of the road there. That's the reconstruction of the cabin that stood there in 1961 when the checkpoint was open. 
fake, in other words. 1989, when the wall came down, it was a different, a larger cabin located there. Uh, you couldn't just drive down Friedrichstrasse here towards West Berlin. You had to travel around chicanes and barriers. The 1980s, a big shed was set up here, and all cars and trucks passing through the checkpoint had to pass underneath the shed, the ceiling of which was lined with mirrors. Cars could look up to see if anybody was hiding on top of trucks. Often they'd stick mirrors underneath your cars, uh, underneath the, the cars to see if anybody was hiding underneath. Uh, sometimes they'd hurt, tear your whole car apart to make sure you weren't carrying any contraband or hiding anyone. Very strict controls here. I've come into the Berlin Wall Museum now, which is right by the old location of Checkpoint Charlie. And out there, there are a couple of sort of actor types in American military uniforms who stand by the little recreated border point hut that used to be there during the Cold War and the communist years. And inside here, all sorts of fascinating artifacts. Just as you come in the door, there's an old blue Volkswagen Beetle 1200 with its bonnet up. But there's a sort of personal curled up inside the front here. And you wouldn't really be able to see them. Uh, even if you picked the bonnet up, it would be quite well concealed. And it says the um, the uh, escape helper, Kurt Voidel from West Berlin, smuggled 55 people out of the GDR with three motor cars of this model between 1964 and 66. There's an old East German dog kennel here. And it says... Dogs had running paths up and down the border, of course. And the dog has a chain on its harness, which runs up to a wire above a bit, like a zip line, so they could run. And it says the, the length for each individual dog amounted to about 70 to 100 meters. And there were 259 of these sections around the, the ring around West Berlin, as the East Germans call it. And at the border, 886 dogs, it said, used to work the whole length of 71.5 kilometers around West Berlin. And here's a model of a cut-out car's fuel tank, a big one by the look of it, in which Friedel Linke, who was 19, lived in Dresden, she escaped on the 15th of August 1969 in this converted petrol tank. Her accomplice, who was soon to be her husband, was a Swiss man from St. Gallen who had bought an old English Alvis special for 4,000 Swiss francs and had exchanged the original 75-litre petrol tank for a homemade one. <laughs> and obviously, a 75-litre petrol tank has plenty of room for a slim young woman of 19 to crawl into and hide for 45 minutes as they drove through uh, initially from Hungary and then through Yugoslavia to Austria. And here's a little old maroon-painted, rather beaten-up Opel P4 van. Not looking very fit and well, but it says the car's equipped with armour plating also on its sides and in the rear, and inside the doors are filled with concrete. Two shots smashed the windshield as the escape was in progress. One hit the front tyre, another went through the glove box, but nobody was injured. Another five lives out to freedom. Oh, look at the, look at the plating in there. That's the, a way to stop these German border guard bullets.
Well, I've just come into the Pergamon Museum, and I'm one of the first inside, which I think is going to be a good thing, because I can see these exhibits without lots of people in the way. And as you come up the stairs from the cloakroom and turn right, and there, towering above you, unbelievable, is the Ishtar Gate of Babylon. And I'm just looking at it now because there are there are all sorts of animals on it. Horned creatures. There's a lion up there. But it's very, very high. It's in dark blue tiles with the animals. Two, four, six, eight, ten, fifteen, eighteen, about thirty animals all in relief. And it's just fantastic. I'm just going to read what it says on the board here. The gate was situated in the northern city wall of Babylon and named after the goddess Ishtar. The gate is decorated with representations of bulls, the symbol of the weather god Adad, and dragons, Babylonian Mushushushu, the symbol of the city god Marduk. The mythical composite animal has the head and body of a snake, front legs of a lion, hind legs of a bird. And this thing is 15 metres high. Well, that tells... And the gate itself, where you actually walk through the bit that's open... That's got to be 20 feet plus. So this is 50 feet tall, this. It's absolutely amazing. And then on the left and the right are two other panels of these dark blue and light blue tiles. And the lions, I'm going to walk right on over there because on this side panel, there are these three lions all in a row marching to the right and then big flowers underneath. But this is ancient. This is way back B.C., this is thousands of years old. And there's another little information plaque here, and it says, and it's, a, it's quoting from the man who built it, I, Nebuchadnezzar, laid the foundation of the gates down to the groundwater level and had them built out of pure blue stone. Upon the walls in the inner room of the gate are bulls and dragons, and thus I magnificently adorned them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in awe. And how on earth they managed to bring it here and reassemble it here is just quite remarkable. Well, the amazing miracles here in the Pergamon Museum <laughs> keep increasing because I've now come into the room where the Pergamon Altar is, and this whole museum was named the Pergamon Museum because of this particular piece of, of Roman history, of Roman creativity. And I thought an altar, well, you know, maybe... 10, 12, 15 feet across, maybe, you know, a few feet high. But this thing is an entire building. You can't, in a sense, call it an altar. It's 40 feet high with a wide, wide staircase going all the way up that height. It must be at least 140, three times as, as wide across. So it's about 50 meters across the frontage of it. And these stunning, huge, much bigger than life-size sculptures all around the the base of it as you walk on up and then on the top when you get to the top there's a colonnade wide colonnade from the two jutting out wings and right across phoebe themis and they're phenomenally beautiful carvings there's there are some arms and legs and heads missing but it's very very impressive still